This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Carnivore Cure. Carnivore Cure is meat based nutrition, and Carnivore Cure therapeutically uses meat only as the ultimate elimination diet. Carnivore Cure is a book. A food toxin database, and in the future, a root cause healing group program. Carnivore Cure Book helps to break down science and provides a step by step elimination protocol. It also provides nutritional support for a meat based diet. Carnivore Cure may just explain why you don't feel as well eating plant based foods. Carnivore Cure is rooted in evidence based nutrition and with over 600 citations and over 250 colored graphics and tables. If you need assurance that a meat based diet is ideal, or if you need more meat based support to guide you, then this book is for you. The colored graphics and information will make the book a resource for years to come. Make sure to grab your paperback, ebook, or audio copy on Amazon or carnivorecure.com. I hope Carnivore Cure helps guide you back to optimal health. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the show. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I work with clients to get to root cause healing, and oftentimes that is gut healing with the meat based elimination diet. Okay, so today is part two of a two part interview series with Dr. Dom D. Augustino. I hope you guys are enjoying the conversation and all the different nuances we are learning about the ketogenic meat based diet. Let's get right into the second part, which then I wanted to ask you so, why are you so opposed to the carnivore diet, just out of curiosity? Oh, I'm not opposed to it. I, I think,、uh, yeah, I've been communicating with a lot of people who it definitely helped.、Um, mm-hmm. I just question whether it's an optimal、uh, diet to do every day long term. So I admit, I think today I'm completely carnivore. So all, I literally just had steak and eggs today. And,、uh, and I think. My wife went shopping.、Uh, I think I'll have some, like a salad tonight. So,、uh, yeah, there are certain days.、Uh, I'm just sort of opposed to just not, I'm opposed to the idea of not eating vegetables. So,、uh, you know, we have avocado trees on our property. And,、uh, but I do tend to, I'm pretty picky about the vegetables that we do eat.、Okay. Um, 
and we a ton ton of salad greens, arugula, asparagus, avocado, a lot of uh, olives, um, tons of olive oil, uh, and trying to and I do eat fruit, so that was another sort of topic that comes up, right? Uh, fruit does spike my glucose really yes. high. If I just have a bowl of wild blueberries, which have one third less sugar, it still can spike me. Usually my my glucose now, I think I look, I mean, I'm like 60s, like high 60s, low 70s right now. And if I had a, a half of a cup of blueberries, I've done this before in a fasted state, it would shoot me up to like 150, 160. Uh, but if I mix the blueberries with sour cream and dump some... Uh, uh, chocolate, collagen, protein into it and stir it up. That's like a, 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 a mousse to me, like a chocolate mousse. And I'll have that in the evenings and I see very little influence on my CGM, like a little bump. It goes up like 10, 10 points with the same amount of... Uh, so it's important to kind of mix food. To, if I eat fruit, I try to do it, you know, in the presence of other fat and fiber mm-hmm. and protein. And that helps. Uh, I do know with the carnivore though, People who go lean and eat a lot of lean protein, if I just have protein without fat, I get really hungry later. And protein is supposed to be satiating, but I could tell you from you know the context of my physiology, if I eat protein that does not have a lot of fat in it, I get very hungry a few hours later. Yeah. Whereas if I have, this morning I had 73% lean or whatever. I mean, it was like super high fatty meat and I had, you know, some eggs with the yolks and everything. I'm not hungry now. I ate, uh, I don't know, like nine hours ago or something. I've, I'm not like, I haven't been hungry all day. So, but if I had like egg whites or if I had like a chicken breast or if I had a lean steak uh, and people on the carnivore sometimes will go a little bit leaner on the protein, uh, I would have been hungry a long time ago and that would have affected my day. And oh, absolutely. May, maybe I would have given in and had something. And if I'm, you know, if if there's like a box of uh, Lucky Charms or something within sight, maybe I would even go for that. But uh, yeah. it never comes to that because I know how I know how my body works. And I think uh, when it comes, a ketogenic diet is hypersatiating and hypopalatable. Right. And I think that's why people can inadvertently lose weight mm-hmm. on carnivore or a ketogenic diet because it is an elimination diet. Right. It's the combination of fat and protein together is hypersatiating, but protein without the fat is not hypersatiating, yeah. at least to me. And because it eliminates some certain foods, it's, it's sort of hype. I don't know if hypo palatable to me, it's kind of indulgent, but at the same time when I'm eating it, it's not like hyper palatable. Like I just, I'm, I'm comfortable eating a little bit and then I'm okay. And that's why it's so effective for, and if, if someone is obese and they just had problems, like they just cannot regulate their calories, there's like really no better therapy. I'm going to call it, you know, it is a metabolic therapy than, a carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet. A carnivore diet that's high in fat is really a ketogenic diet. So, yeah. but I wouldn't go more than like fifty percent protein. Yeah, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I uh, I've tried leaner proteins and fats. So maybe my total calories in the day was sixty sixty five percent fat, and I would get hungry soon or like I would get the cravings. So I could never just do chicken breast. And so that's where if you think about protein sparing modified fast, I think it might work for maybe one day for a carnivore. But in general, you need to eat the higher fat because and my just logical brain was just 
well, if we get either energy or fuel sources from either glucose or glycogen and then from fat, and then you're just eating protein, which then it's metabolically, you know, it requires a lot of um, work within the body. Well, then you're just not going to feel satiated. Whereas if you used one of those fuel sources, it'll be better coupled with the protein. And so that's where I don't think it's, I think it's nearly impossible to do carnivore super lean and long-term at all, because then you don't have that fuel source. And instead you're just eating tons of meat or lean proteins. And you feel tired all the time. I mean, I ate uh, like a two pound lean London broil, like at nighttime, just because I went the whole day and it's like, I I ate half and I was like, let me go eat the other half. And then, you know, I had like, the, the specific dynamic action or thermic effect of food, a protein is very high. You know, the energy used for yes. enzymatic digestion, mechanical digestion, assimilation. So I woke up, I had like the protein sweats at night. Like I, you know, my body just went into like hypermetabolic mode and I had a, a disrupted sleep pattern. Uh, and I'm not sure that would happen if I had like a ribeye steak or something that right. was fatty. I probably wouldn't have had the cravings. Um, But yeah, that's, I mean, going way back when I was really into lifting and stuff, sometimes I would have four or 500 grams protein a day and that's not a misprint. And I just remember, yeah, just being hot all the time and just eating. It's probably totally unhealthy, but uh, today I get, I get by with probably a hundred to a really high day would be 200 grams of protein, but usually about a hundred, 150 grams of protein. I'm also 220 pounds. So two, two, 18, two, 19. So that's where I'm kind of tall. I have a big frame and that's, so that might sound like a lot of protein, but for someone, you know, my size, I think that's reasonable. When you, pretty high. Yeah. When you, um, when you consume the London broil, did you check your blood glucose the next morning? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it tends to, if I eat that much protein, it will be a little bit higher okay. for sure. But interestingly, when I got the CGM, I was very interested in how I thought protein would spike me up a lot. And it definitely led to less of a spike than I anticipated oh, okay. for sure. Like it was almost, and that's eating like more than a pound, sometimes two pounds of meat in you know, one sitting. Uh, I've done that and it doesn't really affect, I mean, it goes up, uh, but I still stay, I have my optimal ranges set within the levels app to like 110 and it doesn't break 110. Like it'll come up from like 80, you know, maybe 106 or something come down even after more than a pound of meat. Uh, But I, I rarely eat like the London broil was pretty lean and Sometimes, you know, if I eat it now, I'll blend bro and then I'll have a big fatty salad with lots of olive oil and maybe, you know, olives on it and things like that. Uh, and that'll buffer fat and fiber significantly buffer the insulin and glycemic response to protein. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes um, sense. Uh, you know, speaking of CGMs, there's like more research coming out that just checking CGMs and kind of monitoring your health on a day-to-day basis with just CGMs isn't necessarily ideal um, because for example, maybe fat has a later insulogenic effect. And so maybe you'll see like a higher dawn effect the next day if you had a super high fat meal or day the day before. Um, So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would argue that CGM is the technology that you use to show that. So that could be, you know, so CGM can be beneficial in that context because it could show you that very thing if that happens. Uh, but I, I think I, I view C, CGM in the context of a normal person using it 
uh, as a behavioral tool. So it, sure. sh- it tells you what not to do. So we are <laughs> getting, getting the IRB was a little confused. Like, why are you doing CGM and someone who's not diabetic? And right. you know, well, uh, we're not using it as a monitoring tool. We're using it as a behavioral tool. So that's how we sort of get, got it approved and slid by that way. Uh, so I, I do think in the context of, um, you know, a low carb diet. Uh, so in the context of, you know, if you give someone a CGM and tell them to monitor their diet, they will then gravitate. I think it's a powerful tool because it will increase their awareness of their metabolic response, glycemic response to food. And they will naturally start to gravitate towards, um, you know, choosing food that does not less spikes, Mm -hmm. the better and then I guess coming back to your point, it will also tell you the area under the curve, right? So that curve could be shifted to the right. So you could have just a higher, an ele- a postprandial elevation that's protracted over the course of five or six hours instead of, you know, one hour if you add fat to that. Um, I would say that, you know, in the context of a caloric surplus, that may not be beneficial, but in the context of a calorie deficit that, you know, prolonging that elevation a little bit could be beneficial. So then, then you have, you know, what mainstream dietitians will say is that the fat will promote insulin resistance. So, and that there's there's definitely evidence for that, but I think the evidence is lacking in the context of a ketogenic diet or a true low carb diet. So what they point to is a hot quote unquote high fat diet mm. that is not sufficiently carbohydrate restricted. Right, right. And I think that definitely becomes a situation when you have surplus calories coming in, and if the surplus calories are fat, then that's going to contribute to insulin resistance, and you know, so you have to view it from that context. But I am kind of a little bit, maybe a little bit of, a, maybe a centrist. So there's the calories in, calories out, and then the yeah. insulin model, <laughs> you know, I am, I think both are true and they, they're not a hundred percent. But I am a firm believer in caloric uh, regulation for mm-hmm. losing weight, body composition. And, but I'm also of the firm opinion that low carbohydrate ketogenic diets are the pathway to, proper calories in calories out management. <laughs> and I agree. Cause I think your hormones will level out more and you'll just kind of know satiety better. The yeah. one thing, I guess my one concern with the CGM, well, I guess I have several, but I, I do think it's good for behavioral balance, right? So I just recommended one of my clients. Um, he definitely, you could tell he's having these glucose insulin effects over the day and he doesn't eat a ton of carbs. So I think the CGM would be great, right? So how do you feel after jujitsu, um, after the dry sauna, um, waking up and so all of that would be really beneficial. But sometimes I think we as common citizens misinterpret information, right? So I brought up that maybe your high fat meal or um, day the day before will then cause you to have a higher dawn effect. But somebody may think, oh my gosh, I ate too much protein the night before. And so let me slash more of the protein, right? Because of gluconeogenesis, you know, Um, and that may not be the right lever. I guess over time, maybe they could figure that out. And then also the other kind of effect is if someone is just drinking fat all day, right? So they're eating 90% fat, very, very limited protein, like the kind of classical ketogenic diet. And then they're like, look, I'm so healthy. My CGM 
right? But then there's like nutritional deficiencies with that kind of diet, right? So that's one of my concerns. And then obviously like having an EMF in you all the time is not ideal in my opinion, but. Um, okay, a couple, con- a okay, couple uh, comments. Uh, so if you do have a dawn effect by eating a lot of protein the day before, you will probably be more satiated and you, in healthy people, the auto-regulatory countermeasures will kind of kick in and then okay. you won't be eating, you know, at least that's how it happens with me, but maybe not so much in someone obese and type two diabetic. Uh, so you have that going on. Uh, so what, what the CGM has done for me is that if, if I eat a meal, I discovered that I can, the, the, the sequence in which I eat my foods actually matters. So yes. if I eat my protein for, so if I eat fat and fiber and then protein, and then even when I'm experimenting with carbs and eat carbs towards the end, the glycemic peak is less and yes. even the area under the curve is less. Mm. So that was very insightful, you know, using the levels app or CGM, it could be Dexcom or, or whatever in there, uh, but to get an analysis of what's going on. Uh, and then the EMF, so the uh, the Abbott does not use oh, okay. uh, Bluetooth, right? So, and I kind of like it better. So I get my phone and I just scan it and then it like kicks in. Uh, whereas the Dexcom, on the other hand, I think is a very valuable tool for a type 1 diabetic because you have real-time communication. But I, I don't like that. I don't like being continuously, you know, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, the continuous... I don't like it for a couple of reasons because I can, I set it all the way down to the bottom 55, 60, and it gets triggered a lot if mm-hmm. I'm exercising or things and it wakes up and it, you can't turn the alarm off. So that's one. And then the, okay. the Bluetooth EMF, um, if you don't like that, you have to deal with that with Dexcom. Um, so, but I, I, and with CGM, it's not something that I would necessarily want to wear all the time for all people, but if you just wear it for a month, just one month can give you so much information because whatever you're going to eat within a month is pretty much what you're going to eat within a year. And you'll have a firm understanding of what, you know, certain meals, meal patterns do, you know, if you want to fast, you can, you know, it's kind of interesting to test. I use it really to test certain foods. Like people send me foods all the time that are ketogenic or low carb, but a lot of times I find out that they're not (laughs) using a CGM. (laughs) So uh, I would encourage your, you know, the listeners to try it, you know, and just do a trial run. I think if you're outside of the U.S., like in Canada, you can just go to the store and buy one over the counter and pop it on you. So in the U.S. is kind of a rare country where you have to have a prescription. Right. but uh, they're easy, easy enough to get if you do a little searching around and, and they can be very insightful, I think. But there's, you know, we, we still don't understand the, the true benefits to people who are normal and healthy. And it becomes the side effect is that the cost, right? So it, it could be hurting your wallet. Uh, but I think it's kind of a small price to pay if yeah. you're going to use it for four weeks, you know, uh, depending on your budget. Yeah, I I agree. I think four weeks, two to four weeks of doing that trial period, especially when you try this new diet, if let's say you're not sure what is supporting your blood glucose, I think for those things, even if you're, um, a lot of my clients may wake up in the middle of the night, and then they'll see sometimes their blood sugar has skyrocketed, and then it drops really suddenly. And that also helps them, oh, what am I doing in the middle of the the day that's affecting my cortisol to still kind of have that 
um, imbalance. And so I think all of that is really helpful. I just don't know if, unless you're type one, like you said, um, if it's beneficial long-term, but it's really also fascinating. Um, You know, a little bit about insulin and ketogenic diet. So there's this whole um, group of people that feel that a ketogenic diet is very metabolizing. And, you know, it's that it's so much work on the body, mitochondrial health, it's just not good. Why don't you just have drips of glucose to support the brain, support other parts of the body that do need glucose. So do you think a ketogenic diet is, you know, may drop insulin way too low, that's not beneficial, not ideal. So is keto, can ketogenic diets not be ideal long term? Yeah, well, I, I mean, for for the situations that what we study, obviously seizures, you don't want to go off a ketogenic diet. Right. Uh, but and you know, I'm I'm on a ketogenic diet all the time. So uh, and I'm also maybe saying that you know it's probably not optimal, right? So, but I do think a low carb diet mm-hmm. is optimal. Uh, I do think a ketogenic diet is within the spectrum, but it's pretty far off on the edge of the spectrum of what is an optimal diet. So, um, so I just encourage, like if you follow a carnivore diet or ketogenic, it's not that you have to do it every day. Right. So some days I do carnivore, but other, but I'm an omnivore. So most of the time, you know, I like to, but I, I keep, I regulate my carbohydrate intake to optimize my glycemia. Right. And I think that has true benefits and uh, and then my insulin's always staying on the low end of normal, but mm-hmm. it's always normal. Uh, but I mean, maybe to get to your point, if you keep insulin so low for so long and then reintroduce carbohydrates, the uh, metabolic pathways that digest, assimilate, transport, and utilize glucose, the uh, uh, glycolysis pathways are not going to be as robust. So if you have surplus calories in the form of carbohydrates, you're going to have higher than you're going to have a hyperglycemic response that's above and beyond what you would have, you know, if you didn't do low carb or ketogenic. And I think this is important for people to understand. It's like, you know, if you have a factory building some kind of machine and then switch over to building another machine, it takes a, a while to, you know, replace and optimize the, the machinery to, to process that. So, uh, and some people adapt really quick, but I think, I think it's good to promote metabolic flexibility. If you exercise intensely, if you exercise your body in the context of a low carb diet, you are promoting, you know, higher fat oxidation Mm -hmm. and then introducing, you know, low glycemic carbs here and there throughout your diet. Probably optimal. It's probably the ideal diet is one that promotes metabolic flexibility, I think. Uh, but, but, that would also be low carb unless you're like an extreme athlete where you'd have super high metabolic demands. Uh, Also, I think if you're younger, I wouldn't want even a football player that's, you know, 16, 17 year old in high school probably is not going to low carb is probably not going to be optimal for him. Like something, a moderate carb diet Mm -hmm. would probably be more ideal. I would probably say a high carb diet would not be ideal, but a more moderate carbohydrate diet would probably be good for growing, but eliminating or minimizing, not eliminating uh, sugar and processed carbohydrates, you know, and I, I think as much as possible, you know, in kids, my nieces and nephews basically mainline sugar. I mean, but they're like little anatomy charts. They're just very high in metabolism so they can tolerate it. But obviously the majority of our, 
our kids cannot tolerate it because we have uh, an obesity problem kids. So. See, that's so interesting because um, when I was doing research for kids, um, they say that your brain is almost fully developed by the age of five. And, you know, 60% of our... Oh, you don't believe that? Okay. No, I, a lot of, you know, when our hormones kick in, in adolescence, there are pretty profound changes in the, not only the neuropharmacology of the brain, but the brain structures oh, okay. too, quite, quite well, a bit. But yeah, the brain size kind of stays the same. But yeah, the I think that's what I meant through adolescence. Yeah, the through brain development. Yeah, brain size. But then, yeah, then you have like long term potentiation, synaptic pruning, and things like that that happen. You know, through adolescence, it's pretty profound. I would actually say until we're about twenty one, the brain okay. is still kind of changing. So then, with that logic, let's say it's twenty one then, um, and if most, if sixty percent of our brain is fat then would it make more sense to eat a higher fat, lower carb diet for even kids to ensure, you know, and with like heavy doses of like sardines and omega threes for their brain health, but to have the most robust brain health. I mean, that would be my logic instead of the, Oh, well, you're metabolically healthier. So therefore you can consume more carbohydrates. And I think we'd get, you know, as long as we're not deficient in it. And I think if we're getting that from the foods that we're eating, that's the way to do it. There's probably no need to supplement for, you know, I would think, you know, that's one good thing about the carnivore diet or maybe even a, a well, well-formulated ketogenic diet is there's really no need to supplement anything. You should be getting all the nutrition you, you need. Uh, I did have low magnesium in the beginning, so I started supplementing magnesium, but I think my diet has changed since I had that. Uh, but I still supplement magnesium. It's one of the few things I supplement. Uh, but I'm, I'm of the firm opinion that yeah, I think our uh, our carbs should be lower and our fat should be higher in developing kids, and that will optimize okay. brain development and brain function. Okay, as I just a neuroscientist, to... I'm just strictly as a neuroscientist. Okay. Yeah, I really believe that. Um, so I'm just curious. Um, you said you do keto basically all the time, but you still think an ideal diet is a low carb, and is it because of the metabolic flexibility, or like why do you do one diet but you think another diet is more optimal? Well, if I'm, if I add, if I introduce vegetables and fruits and I, I try to keep like a veggie fruit ratio of like two to one, okay. you know, uh, uh, that fiber and maybe the phytonutrients too. Some may argue that, but I do think the fiber can help, uh, me digest and assimilate the protein and I get less of a glycemic response and I just enjoy it. So I enjoy eating, uh, vegetables in different forms mostly salads um, and stir-fried vegetables and things like that. So it's more of an enjoyable thing uh, for me. Um, it's more the fiber is satiating too. So the combination of fat and fiber together is what I really enjoy. And it seems to, you know, from wearing a CGM, it seems to optimize my glycemic control. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. When you say low-carb... Uh, what, how is that different than keto? 
I guess maybe if we were to count yeah. grams of carbs. Uh, ketogenic diet is defined by an objective biomarker. So it's the only okay. diet that we know of that actually has an objective biomarker to define the diet. So that's uh, hyperketonemia defined as an elevation of urine, breath, or blood ketones. So, okay. and, this, and the, the sustainment of that over time means that you're following a ketogenic diet. So a low carb diet is not necessarily ketogenic, but my low carb, you know, my threshold is somewhere between 50 and 100 grams a day, depending on my activity. So I typically keep it around that range. Okay. And my carbs come from uh, primarily broccoli, salads, dark chocolate, and wild blueberries. And occasionally like fruit that we have on our trees around the yard. Uh, so that's that's about it. So I titrate my carbs gotcha. uh, pretty much to always be in a mild state of ketosis. And that's how I feel best. I mean, subjectively, that's how I feel. Not looking at any, you know, objective biomarker, but if I'm going to eat to optimize my energy and how I feel, that's that's the carbohydrate set point for me, 50 to 100 grams a day. I wanted to touch a little bit about fasting. I know you're a fan of fasting, so one why, and then you know, there's a lot of people that say fasting for women too much is like not ideal for hormonal health, for cortisol production again, and just general wellness. It's not that ideal. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, for women, uh, women's physiology are more reactive to hypoglycemia and energy deficit. So, uh, and they're going to probably have more hormonal you know, changes in response to the caloric deficit or to fasting. So I think that, I think some people take it too far. Uh, But for me, if I go beyond 72 hours, uh, I start to see some hormonal effects, uh, primarily like testosterone and thyroid start to go down. And And then it actually takes quite a while to recover. So, and my strength too, if I fast for like five to seven days, my strength, uh, I then see it in my strength the week after and if for a seven day fast, even the week after that. So not necessarily at the end of the fast, but I feel it more the weeks after. And, and, you know, if I did intermittent fasting all the time, I tend to lose weight and I think I lose lean body mass more. So I only do it like maybe now, nowadays, maybe once or twice a week. Uh, I do it. So this, so everything I just mentioned would apply to females too, I think, um, is that, but they're maybe more uh, receptive to some of the negative effects of fasting uh, with uh, low, you know, I know with women who are breastfeeding, for example, they just can't even do it on a low carb diet because the insulin's and, you know, important for prolactin and other right. hormones to regulate that. So I think that's kind of a warning sign too. And I think maybe from an evolutionary perspective, and I heard a few guys talk about this, that, you know, tribes, sometimes the men ate meat, they would hunt, but the women were more like gatherers and would eat more, uh, more higher carbohydrates. So maybe even from an evolutionary context, not that we should always be eating what our ancestors were eating, but, uh, but I think that's maybe a good place to start is that maybe women were just genetically evolutionarily adapted to eating more carbohydrates just by from our, our cultural, uh, you know, just what we did, our ancestors did. So, uh, but I think it's probably just from a child rearing, you know, female physiology point of view is that 
they are less robust in fat oxidation and ketone mm -hmm. production. Uh, maybe not so much ketone production because I've seen women, uh, at least in the pediatric population, the, the female kids uh, get, although when they reach, uh, they start menstruating and going through their cycles, sometimes when they're menstruating, women will make lots of ketones and other women will decrease ketone production and get breakthrough seizures on that. So oh. there's a lot of variability, I think. And even, I mean, this is variability within the context of a very strict formulated ketogenic diet that's almost like a cookie cutter kind of thing. You see variability between uh, women. So I think, they, I think it's more important for them to do blood work and monitoring than maybe men. Yeah. Um, you know what's so yeah. fascinating is, so um, with my second child, I was on a ketogenic diet. Um, I got really sick with my first, and so I wasn't able to fully nurse him the time I wanted. And so with my second, I was very, very cautious about anything health related to make sure um, he would get the nutrients. And so, um, so first two years, I didn't fast at all so that he would get his uh, milk. And so I thought, well, I'm ready to start fasting, do extended fasting. And I did a seven day fast. Um, and I did it probably in his lifetime, um, the lifetime he was nursing, I did it twice, but he still breastfed after and he breastfed the whole time I was doing it. And I was shocked. I thought, no, my prolactin will be gone. But he nursed the whole time, even while I fasted. And I did two seven-day fasts in his full five years of fasting. I mean, of wow. breastfeeding. Yeah. Breastfeeding, wow. So it was pretty yeah, fascinating. Um, but I don't ever recommend women fasting the first year or two at all. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I did it like my third year, and he, he, there was still milk. So I was like – I'm thinking that if you do it, then that becomes your normal and your it body doesn't perceive that as abnormal. So what I've noticed is that the more you fast, the easier it gets and the more benefits true. you derive from it. Because when you start fasting, it's like your body knows exactly what to do. And it just you just get into, yeah, I don't ever feel better than I do that, you know, second and third day of fasting. Like, I don't know. I've tinkered with like nootropic drugs and, you know, all these different things. And I don't think anything really compares to like exercise and fasting as far as mental clarity and uh, being in that flow state, if you want to call it that. Let me, uh, let's talk a little bit about sleep. Um, there are people that say they get better sleep on keto, a ketogenic diet. Um, there's some studies that show that you will go through the cycles much quicker. So you'll get into REM or deep sleep much faster. And so maybe you need um, less sleep in general, but then there's also people that say, I cannot sleep without carbs. Um, I love the ketogenic diet. I feel great during the day, but then at night um, I'm wired or I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm wired and I need some carbs. So um, what are your thoughts about sleep with a ketogenic diet? Yeah, I think when I... <sighs> In the beginning, I wasn't really monitoring because I didn't have like the aura ring and like the, the other devices I use now to monitor sleep. But uh, I, I always told people I can sleep faster on a ketogenic diet or in a ketogenic state, which uh, it cut about an hour out. So it was like an eight hour sleeper always, or maybe seven and a half, and then uh, adapted quite well to six hours, okay. where I was getting six and a half hours, or six, six and a half hours, and having more energy off six and a half hours than I did off seven or eight hours prior to eating this way. And, uh, and I think it, it could be due to a number, it could be, you know, you're activating, you know, the, the sleep 
the sleep architecture is probably changing, the lymphatic system, you know, which kicks in when you sleep. There's a lot of different reasons for that. But maybe just like better glycemic control at nighttime sure. and less highs or lows, I think could be contributing to that. But now um, I sleep about seven hours and like 10 minutes or 15 minutes if I look at the aggregated, you know, summary of all my sleep and typically about uh, one hour, about 90 minutes of deep and oh, nice. uh, sometimes up to two hours, sometimes three if uh, I miss a night or something like that. But typically, uh, typically usually o- over uh, 90 minutes and about 90 minutes or more of REM. Uh, and I frequently get over two hours of REM. So, uh, and I, I do use melatonin, uh, maybe magnesium, sometimes CBD, I'll use that. Uh, these are all things sometimes I, you know, that can promote sleep. Uh, occasionally I will use GABA in the form of Fenibut if I know I can sleep in or, but I just use that maybe once or twice a month. But I do note, I have noticed that when I take that, that's when I hit like two and a half, three hours of deep sleep like that. And I'll be like super refreshed. When right. I, wake up. I don't recommend people taking that. It's a kind of a powerful drug every day, but uh, on the, the rare occasion I use it, that's when I've actually hit the three hour deep sleep mark. Okay. But with key and, and then I can, uh, I do notice when I fasted people, a lot of people emailed me about how do you fast? How do you sleep when you fast? Right. And actually my sleep was pretty good with, with my, uh, 72 hour fast, maybe not in initially. Oh, but sometimes, okay. Now I remember like my protocol now is the first day of the 72 hour fast is to do a small dose of Fenibut, like 250 mm-hmm. to 500 milligrams. And then that overcomes that sort of sympathetic nervous system activation. I think that you get during that first day because I tend to snack at night. So not doing that, my body kind of is just like, what's up? And I think the GABA just takes the edge off and I end up sleeping normal. What about the people that do a ketogenic or low carb diet long-term and they say they can't sleep? Maybe the ketogenic diet low carb is not for them, but what I would recommend is like maybe transition slowly to the diet with, um, you know, I'm talking with a lot of practitioners that run at different clinics and their protocol is to ease people into the ketogenic diet, typically over four to six weeks. Okay. And then they, they, their sleep, everything's fine. Um, I of course didn't do that because I like to jump headfirst into things and I went from pretty high carb right to a classical ketogenic diet. So, uh, and I did have some side effects and I did maybe, didn't really pay much attention to sleep back then, but I just remember being really winded and tired in the gym and not getting up like a pump, like lifting weights and things like that. And then after like a month or two, everything just kind of kicked in for me. Yeah. So give it a little bit of time, you know, expect, I mean, you're changing your energy system. So expect, you know, you're going to have changes in energy, how you feel, things like that. Uh, That's to be, if you didn't have that, I would say something's not right. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I I agree. Um, You like to supplement um, exogenous ketones. I know in the very beginning when you introduced yourself, you mentioned that um, you were working on like exogenous supports that can be neuroprotective. So, so one, why do you supplement exogenous ketones? And then two, um, when you let's say you're on a standard American diet, would it make sense to supplement these um, exogenous ketone supplements for maybe even neuro, um, neuroprotective mechanisms? Yeah, well, I'd like to, my, uh, 
my research is actually evaluating the the safety and the efficacy of exogenous ketones, and I've been okay. doing that for quite some time. So I then began consuming these things as part of just very out of curiosity, like 10 years ago or more. And then in the process of doing that and doing quite a bit of research on it, I realized that there's real world benefits, obviously for epilepsy, you know, ketones uh, change brain neuropharmacology. They stimulate like more GABA versus glutamate and things like that. They have anti-inflammatory effects. They have epigenetic effects. We have a whole project studying that. So, uh, but I think as a supplement, I take it, it's the same reason I supplement, um, you know, creatine, right? So creatine, uh, the beta-hydroxybutyrate supplements are, you know, beta-hydroxybutyrate is found in nature. And you, when you consume it, it's elevating a metabolite that your body makes energy or makes anyway. So you're further elevating that. One could say it's unnatural, but creatine monohydrate is a very safe, effective supplement. And you are, it's, you know, it's in meat, it's in red meat. So if you're on a carnivore diet, you probably don't need supplement. You're probably not getting any benefit from creatine. Although if I totally eliminate it and then reintroduce it, I can get like an extra rep, you know, by the end of the week Mm -hmm. of taking it. So ketones are like the next creatine, right? It's like a molecule. You take it, it converts to energy, it helps your body produce energy, Uh, It's sort of more natural than taking like an antioxidant like CoQ10 or something like that because it is sort of a a form of energy that your body has. And uh, and we've just seen so many remarkable benefits to taking it from glycemic control. So also that when you fast and you naturally elevate your ketones, then that ketone body becomes a a hormone in a way that there are receptors to ketones, like the GPR109A receptor. Uh, you know, there's a variety of different receptors. And then when they're activated, they uh, confer uh, many different benefits. You know, and I won't go in all the bit. Some are anti-inflammatory, some are neuroprotective. Uh, some of it tells our body to shift to more fat oxidation. Uh, some of it is, um, you know, may influence the liver in different ways, we think. So I think there's a wide range of benefits to ketones that are produced endogenously and also exogenously. And I do think that exogenous ketones could be a way to further augment the benefits of a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet. So if you go low-carb, but your ketones are not elevated, and then you add ketones to that, I think that it has definitely has appetite suppressing effects. It's giving you more energy. And then as if you elevate ketones, what happens is that actually you sort of build the transporters too. So you're okay. facilitating what we call ketolysis, the burning of ketones for energy. And that stimulates more enzymes to increase that robust pathway. So uh, when people take these things, you know, uh, there's a lot of marketing <laughs> that I don't like. There's a lot of promoting, you know, using exogenous ketones as a replacement to the ketogenic diet. I don't like that. But what we do do, though, we take animals that are on a standard diet and then we gavage them. We kind of tube feed them ketones and then we put them in a situation that induces a seizure and it prevents the seizure better than any anti-seizure drug. So what that is basically telling us is that it's protecting the brain. The brain, 
when we put an animal in five atmospheres of oxygen or a human, they will have a seizure in five to 10 minutes. If you elevate their ketones with a ketone supplement and put them in that same chamber at five atmospheres of oxygen, their brain becomes so metabolically efficient that it can withstand the seizure 600%. There's a delay in that latency to seizure. So that was the early studies that I did. So what that was telling me is that the brain is functioning in this optimized state. Maybe that has implications for Alzheimer's disease, for Angelman syndrome. So we have a clinical trial for other disease pathways. And you're doing it with a natural, with a metabolite that your body makes energy, uh, makes anyway. So you can elevate that as a form of energy, but come to find out it is functioning and preserving brain energy metabolism. But then we see that it's also activating an enzyme glutamic acid decarboxylase, GAD 65 and 67. So it's converting more of that glutamate to GABA, which is like a brain stabilizing has, it's reducing inflammation and inflammation can actually make the brain more seizure, uh, seizure prone. And, uh, and it's working through adenosine and all these other pathways that we're looking at now. So it's not just, you know, filling the energy gap. It's actually changing the neuropharmacology of the brain in ways that makes it protective. So it might have implications for like traumatic brain injury, uh, for brain fog, for the glucose withdrawal we go through when we're fasting or when we're on a low carb diet. But I caution people that, you know, we did, I don't like any, I don't like many of the supplements on the market. So I'm very hesitant to, people ask me like, what ketone supplements do you use? And I'm very hesitant to throw out different names. And even our university has, you know, works with different companies. Um, But there's a couple that I, that I use and you can, if you go to my Instagram, you know, sometimes I post the different ones that I test, Okay. Uh, but I don't have my own ketone supplement. Uh, but uh, one of the brands I use is audacious nutrition, you know, that's a good one. And then, and then our keto nutrition.org website will list the ones that we have tested. Okay. So I'll go that far, but I don't like to promote certain brands. Okay. You know. And I'll put that in the show notes. Um, so in terms of supplementing, um, there are some people that say that if you supplement with exogenous ketones, that you're going to one, not then use the fat on your own body. Um, and then also that you won't be producing your own ketones. Is there any merit in that? Uh, if you take a very large dose of a ketone ester. Yes. So when you consume a ketone ester, that's a form of energy. Whenever you're introducing energy into the body, you will theoretically use less energy from your body. So, uh, so for example, like, you know, if you consume protein, that will decrease fat oxidation because you're introducing a source of calories. So you could look at all the different macromolecules, fat, protein, carbohydrates, and then ketones as a fourth macronutrient. And if you consume a hundred grams a hundred calories of each, you will have more fat burning sustained after you consume the hundred calories of ketones. So does that, I think it's important to put it into context. Right. So the other question does, do you shut down your ketone production if you take exogenous ketones? Uh, If you take a large dose of the ketone ester and you increase your ketones uh, at Delta of two millimolar. So say say someone's like on a ketogenic diet or low carb or just fasting and they're at one millimolar ketones or no ketones at all. And they increase their 
their ketone level to millimolar by taking a ketone ester and the threshold for a ketone salt is about 1.5 to 2. So once you get above 2, then that causes a release of insulin, and then mm -hmm. that can theoretically shut down fat burning and ketone okay. production. But with the current ketones on the market, there are some ketone esters, but they're still really not a good... I, I'm actually, and this is someone who does most of what we publish is actually ketone esters, is that I am... I'm kind of afraid to go keep going above that. So what I think is optimal for the, is to stay within that one millimolar range. And okay. you can easily achieve that with a ketone salt yeah. product and you're delivering some important, some maybe useful electrolytes too. So, uh, so if you do that once or twice a day, you can boost your energy. You're not stimulating insulin. So you're driving, you're continuing to drive fat oxidation and your own ketone production. If you consume the ketone salt with like a little bit of MCT, MCT oil, powder, or coconut oil, then you're also stimulating even more ketone production endogenously with like, uh, with that, or just simply, you know, having the ketone salt. Uh, what I tend to do is sometimes I'll break my fast with a ketone salt product. So I, I can extend the benefits of the fast oh, gotcha. because it's not elevating insulin and I'm continuing to promote fat oxidation, but I get a nice boost in energy and suppression of appetite. So that in that way, I'm like further augmenting the fast because a lot of the benefits from the fast is coming from the ketones. We know that now, uh, not all, but, but many, and sort of just extending that fast in a useful way. When you're on a ketogenic diet, um, I know that the research says like two to three days that it would take for autophagy to happen with fasting. But if you are already on a ketogenic diet, like how quickly do you think we're really in a, you know, the full cleaning up of the cells and all the other autophagy type cell cleanup? Um, how, how quickly do you think that happens? Uh, it depends on where your starting point is. Okay. You know, if um, there's a lot of variables, so it's kind of a hard question to answer. But what I, what I do personally is that, and I think the data would support this too. And actually want to, I want to study this by looking at, uh, the autophagosome. So measuring autophagy is kind of, we're doing this now, we have a grant to do this now. So there's different proteins that you can measure to measure autophagy. And, uh, and it's not a direct measurement. There's this autophagosome that is part, sort of big, uh, part of a bigger complex where you're measuring sort of indirectly uh, the levels of autophagy. And from my estimation, and I, I think data can support this, is that if you achieve a glucose ketone index of one, okay. that means your glucose goes down and your ketones gradually get elevated to say 3.2 millimolar. And both, both glucose and ketones are at 3.2 uh, in, in millimolar. So, so milligrams per deciliter with glucose, that would be like 70 or something or 60, low, 60 high, upper 60s or something. So if you can achieve that and sustain that for like 24 hours, you are maxing out autophagy. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, I achieve a glucose ketone index right after, right at about 48 hours. So at the 72 hour mark, I have more or less, and it's going to fluctuate throughout the day. But if I'm like, you know, at my desk or whatever, it kind of stays that level. Uh, if you can maintain a GKI of one, glucose, glucose ketone index of one for 24 hours, I think you are maxing out autophagy. And then that's when I stop my fast, because if I go beyond 72 hours, I get some negative effects of it. 
So what I would like to do is develop, you know, some tools to measure that. That would be cool. So, I mean, we're doing it in mice, but I don't know if I want to run the assays on myself uh, and take biopsies. And, you know, I would like to know what's happening in the liver and the brain and things like that. So that is one thing that people could do if they're really into autophagy can be negative or positive. So it's the level of autophagy. Autophagy is happening all the time, no matter what. Uh, But, uh, but I think, I personally think that I've thought about this quite a lot, that one way that you can get benefits of autophagy is to periodically do a 72 hour fast. And that last 24 hours, if you can hit or maintain a GKI of one, you're pretty much maxing out. You have a level of insulin suppression and an activation of pathways that would correlate to, you know, autophagy from my estimation. So I think that's one thing that people can do if they want to get some of the benefits of autophagy and they could take it out long. So if they're obese, if they're type two diabetic and they're insulin resistant, they may have to extend that four or five, six, maybe even seven days. But I would be, for me personally, I just get negative effects after uh, although I feel good at like five days, six days and seven days, but I just, you know, from a muscle point of view, I'm just, I feel like I'm wasting muscle. Got it. I mean, I know that, um, Jason Fung and his camp of fasters believe that, um, yes, you may catabolize some of your muscles for a little bit, but as soon as you eat that, it comes back. I've never done any of the studies to know if that's like if it fully comes back or if it's just not worth the level of effort, I don't know. I mean, it takes a while to come back. Okay. Like, you know, if you're dieting for like a, like a, a powerlifting event or a body, and you dieting for like 12 to 16 weeks, it's not like your, your metabolism goes back to normal in a week or Got two. It. Like it actually takes equal amount of time to bring your metabolism back up. Uh, that was a bit of a foreign concept until sort of, I was talking to Lee Norton, who's a friend of mine and, you know, pro natural bodybuilder. And I just figured, you know, your body bounces back in about a week or so, but no, it takes quite a long time to restore your metabolism back to, and with fasting, what I find is that like a week of fasting takes more than like a week to recover, uh, for me, but three days, I'm pretty much, you know, if I fast, and I start Monday, if I start like Sunday night and end it, you know, uh, 72 hours later by Friday or the next weekend, I'm pretty much back to normal, you know, and I don't have any strength impairment. And that's how I gauge, you know, people say, how do you know you're not losing muscle? Well, if I'm not losing strength, I'm not losing muscle. So that makes sense. if I can maintain my strength, that becomes the barometer through which I assess the preservation of lean body mass and strength and muscle. And that makes sense. And then for everyone, that bar can be set for how, however long it, um, yeah. for their for their own um, case. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about fruits and fat. So um, there is a camp of people that do a mostly ketogenic or a carnivore. I guess um, it wouldn't be a ketogenic diet, but a carnivore diet. So mostly meat, fats, saturated fats. Um, and then what do they do? They add like uh, bits of honey, bits of fruit. So maybe sometimes they're at 100, 200 grams of carbohydrates. I don't really know exactly how much, but is there a little bit of a danger with that much saturated fats, meats and proteins, and then also that much fructose in our system? I mean, would that be a tax, right, on our liver, for example? I, I don't think, it, you know, it's, it's all about calories too. Like if you're within your 
calorie count, I think you're completely fine. It depends on the individual, but I see like no, there's probably better carbohydrate sources than honey or like a banana or things like that. So I gravitate towards uh, even even an apple, wild blueberries, uh, strawberries surprisingly are pretty low uh, low CGM response. Uh, raspberries, strawberries, wild blueberries, they all spike, but they tend to be lower than normal. A honey crisp apple kind of spikes up a little bit, but uh, but like a green apple, uh, plums were kind of low. Cherries were kind of lower than expected. Uh, so there's certain fruits that are higher in fiber that are good, that are better than, for example, uh, bananas or watermelon or uh, oranges, actually. We have a lot of orange trees on the property, and oranges spike me up a lot, although I like them. Even a grapefruit, which is kind of tart and bitter, spikes me up a lot. Uh, although when I combine that food with fat and uh, in a meal, then that tends to attenuate that spike. But yeah, I think you're uh, I think it's fine. I mean, it depends on what your goals are and everything. But if you're, ideally, you would like to introduce the the carbohydrate in and around activity to uh, to make best use of it, you know, and that will promote better glycogen storage and things like that. Okay, that makes sense. I I was just wondering because sometimes there's no danger to me. Yeah, you know, there's no okay. danger. So even if you were to eat like 200 grams in terms of total carbohydrates from fruits with a high fat um, carnivore or like a meat-based diet. I guess my concern is 200 grams at one sitting may, uh, you know, if you're doing that every day, that's probably not going to build a, one thing that you could do is kind of the next day, just measure your triglycerides. And um, I think triglycerides are great. You might want to measure your insulin response. Not everybody can measure insulin, but, uh, but I think it would be important to track your glucose, you know, uh, Anyone can go to Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, or whatever, and buy a $20 glucose monitor and just, you know, prick your finger and then look at your glucose response. And if you're spiking up to 200 or higher, then that's not a good thing. I think that's going to catch up to you. So I'm of the firm belief that, you know, the less spikes, the better. And I think that's going to pay big dividends for our longevity. But if you are doing this like maybe once or twice a week, you're probably totally fine, especially if you're an active person. If you are someone who is like type two diabetic and you're obese and you're trying to lose weight, that is not something that I would tell people to do. That's probably not a good thing to do at all. (laughs) Okay. No, that, that makes sense. So in In that context, it could be dangerous, you know? uh, Yeah, no, for my mom, she was diabetic. So she went meat based. She had like avocados and this and that once in a while, but if she has fruit after her steak or her eggs, um, then her morning blood sugar will go back to like the 160. So that's mm. when she cut out the fruit. That's what benefited her to have more of the like pre-diabetic range. So she used to be diabetic with metformin, still had diabetic numbers in the morning. And now she has no meds, but she's like in the 115s, which obviously isn't ideal. But if she eats fruit, it goes back up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's an important indication, and it might it might be interesting to like look at total calories. So if she's eating fruit, is that is that fruit extra calories? But if you control for calories, is it still are you still spiking glucose in the morning? So that might be interesting. Probably is. Uh, 
So, you know, there are people who just advocate it's all about calories, but no, that's not the full story. So I can keep my calories exactly the same and then eat more carbohydrates and my glucose is higher and all over the place. Whereas I could actually eat more calories, but eat more ketogenic and low carb and I have better glycemic control. So, you know, I'm kind of for, you know, calories in, calories out makes sense, but about 80% of it. Like, you know, a big chunk of that is the type of food we eat and even pairing the food and formulating the meal. Like, you know, the fruit for me at least uh, has minimal or no effect if I eat it as part of uh, other foods like fat, fiber, and protein. Yeah, I'm on the same page. I think that makes a lot of sense, Um, especially if you don't have that metabolically, a metabolic damage, then, you know, you can follow those um, eating certain macros at certain times of the meals makes sense. I mean, that's what I learned in nutritional therapy as well, that your body will use different digestive enzymes. So it makes absolute sense. Um, You know, as we're wrapping up, I wanted to quickly ask you, so you said that you've seen some blood work uh, with carnivores where they might have risks of excess nutrients. Um, Have you seen that often? And what was sort of the recommendation thereafter? Uh, Yeah, the thing that I was kind of thinking about, maybe some of the B vitamins, but iron, you know, iron, uh, I think we, uh, males in particular need to really kind of control for their iron. Yes. And, uh, and I think that, you know, a purely carnivore diet in males, especially in like if males that are, uh, like hormone supplementation. So that could be, I don't, I'm not on hormone replacement therapy, but I know a lot of guys are, and some of those guys are eating, you know, carnivore or whatever. Uh, I, I think the high iron can catch up to you as a male. So that's one thing to track certain like B12, which oh, is, yeah. you know, you want it high, but I think uh, higher levels of uh, vitamin A, uh, vitamin K, vitamin uh, vitamin D, maybe even uh, could get high. So it depends. So what I do, like I don't eat organ meat every day but uh, I eat it maybe about once a week. So I'm kind of not of the opinion that one should be eating organ meat every day. I just think it's too nutrient dense, yes. actually. But I think it's, it's very valuable because it is nutrient dense. So if you're going on like a weight loss diet and you're on a calorie deficit diet, then again, it's coming back to this idea that you know, maybe that's when you should start incorporating uh, a carnivore diet with like organ meat because it's so nutrient dense. You're getting all your nutrition with minimal amount of calories. So right. that can be very, very beneficial. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I just think there's people that maybe have more than two ounces a day. And, you know, we, a yeah. lot of times, if you use your own palate, um, your body may kind of reject it. But then if you're taking it in supplement form or some other you know, man-made form, then it may just go down and it may not be beneficial for you. It's really hard based on studies to measure true amounts of vitamin A in your liver that's stored, but the blood um, vitamin A may not be all of what's in your system. And so it gets Mm -hmm. kind of scary, right? I see people that do well on carnivore and then sometimes over time, something starts going off kilter. And I wonder if we're, we're getting hypervitaminosis or we're taking in too much nutrition for our body's demands. And there are hypervitaminosis. Um, yeah. I've never heard that term, but yeah, that makes sense. I think, I think it's a, that's a good description of what I think might be happening. And I know that, you know, when we do deplete our body of nutrients and, and vitamins, I think that's a good thing because I think it resets, 
it's almost like resetting our insulin sensitivity. It's resetting our vitamin sensitivity. So sure. I think we can get along better. And I know that even in the context of cancer, if you restrict like certain B vitamins that you could restrict cancer growth and it might be beneficial. So that's why people with cancer don't want to be like supplementing lots of vitamins. Could it, it could actually, you know, uh, because cancer cells are replicating right. and increasing and the vitamins actually may be an enabling factor for that too. So I'm, I'm of the opinion That's it's, crazy, it's yeah. good not to have hypervitaminosis, the term <laughs> used. So it might be good to have hypovitaminosis like occasionally. And I think like a water only fast may help achieve mm -hmm. that. Although my protocol is to actually have liver the day before I do the fast to ensure <laughs> that I've just done that. And out of like uh, just experience, I've noticed that if I have a liver the day before, it just makes the fast go a lot easier. I have like a lot more energy. How much liver do you eat prior to that fast? Uh, probably my wife makes this like liver dish. It's like chicken liver usually, sometimes beef liver, but I would say a half a pound to oh, okay. maybe about three quarters of a pound yeah, okay. of liver. I mean, if you're not eating um, liver often, it may be okay. Um, it depends also like how much vitamin A you're getting from other foods. Um, yeah. And then also the other, like if you eat chicken liver, there's not as much concern of the copper toxicity as beef livers, copper, beef. the the amounts of copper are completely yeah. different. So it'll depend. And then I, I can see why it'll help you in terms of a fast, just because it gives you that nutrient support for longer. But, you know, when you consume a lot of um, like egg yolks, for example, and then you're also eating other animal products that are rich, like goat milk is also rich in vitamin A. And then you're consuming mm -hmm. liver on a daily basis, you may cap out at the vitamin A very quickly. Um, so you pass the upper limits very, very like a one ounce of liver for a baby, um, it's past the upper limits already. So then if you're feeding your yeah. kid that often, what does that mean for their liver? And if your liver isn't fully developed until age three or four, then we, it's just stuff that's not really known and it's just not the risk of just supplementing. Yeah. Right? And yeah, I know. And when I was younger, I took a drug Accutane, which was like oh, a, yeah. like an a derivative. And I remember at the time I was kind of into working out and I was like obsessed in eating sweet potatoes and I was eating so many sweet potatoes. I was like turning orange and I, I was using this drug Accutane and I think there was some kind of uh, interaction there. So, totally. uh, yeah. And I, I know uh, other people took like multiples. I only had to take like a half of a cycle of Accutane. Like uh, I just had some like acne on my back when I was younger, but, but I remember like side effects of that and that maybe being associated with uh, affecting my liver because I was eating, getting so much vitamin A Yes, and the sweet potatoes I was eating. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Especially if yeah, you yeah. turned orange um, or kind of orange. Yeah. Um, that's one of the signs of it. It's that's more of the yeah, beta yeah. carotene, but it's still the, yeah. all the different forms of vitamin A end up becoming similar forms and including yeah. the one in Accutane. So it's just scary. It's like, you know, we think nutrition is good, but we never think, well, what about the excess or the upper limits? Yeah. And so that's where, um, you know, there's not a lot of talk of that in carnivore. I do think carnivore yeah. is very nutrient dense, but what if it's too much? Yeah, I think for those wanting to do a weight loss approach, I think it's, uh, I can't imagine any diet that's better, like for, for weight loss, because you're getting optimal nutrition with minimal amount of calories. And it's, it's a way to prevent nutritional deficiencies. No, absolutely. 
I think what blew my mind right now is that when you were talking about cancer and how they proliferate essentially, right? The cells. Um, And then, but so many people that are um, going through chemo, they will use mega doses of supplements because they're trying to support the lack of nutrition, but that may not be ideal based on the logic of what you just brought up, which is kind of mind blowing, right? So yeah. So overnutrition, I believe can, could be, it's a bit controversial, but could be an initiator and enabling factor for cancer, cancer to occur. But if you look at the hallmarks of cancer, like unbridled proliferation, cell proliferation, you know, there's uh, metabolic uh, derangement and things like that. So having surplus calories, high insulin, you know, high glucose, that all feeds into into that. So periodically doing like a 72 hour fast or just staying low carb and keeping check on all your metabolic uh, health and metabolic biomarkers and inflammation state. That's, I think prevention's the key, but even if you have uh, cancer and you're interested in the ketogenic diet, there are dozens now of clinical trials looking at the ketogenic diet in the camp, in the, in the context of an adjuvant to further augment different, uh, you know, standard of care approaches. That's chemo, radiation, and even immune therapy. The ketogenic diet is being used to augment that. So people can, uh, you know, look that up too on PubMed and also clinicaltrials.gov. I know this is a hard question, maybe even loaded, but if you knew a friend or a loved one that had cancer, let's say it wasn't um, at level four, stage four, but would you go through the conventional care, the radiation, um, chemo, and things like that? Uh, you know, it depends on the type of cancer, right? Like, you know, we had a family member that had uh, a form of uh, leukemia. And in that case, it was just, you know, all the way standard of care, Nutrition's going to make, you know, it's going to keep you healthy, of course, but, uh, but, you know, ketogenic diet may be probably offering little help there. But a lot of what we study is actually brain cancer and different mm-hmm. forms of metastatic cancer. And in that context, uh, you know, keeping insulin low, keeping glucose low, being in a state of ketosis is probably very beneficial. Obviously, it is for brain cancer because that's associated with seizures. So you don't have to be on like seizure meds on top of that. But there's really strong scientific rationale for using ketogenic diet as a metabolic therapy, not so much as a standalone therapy, uh, although for glioblastoma, very little, you know, very few things help it but in the context to further augment standard of care. That's what, and we actually, we've never even published a study that's just the ketogenic diet alone. We've combined the ketogenic diet, for example, with you know, hyperbaric oxygen therapy or ketone supplementation, things like that. So we do feel that in the future, it will be possible to develop a non-toxic metabolic-based therapy that can replace, and for some forms of cancer, uh, the standard of care and, uh, and probably be used as some form of uh, immune-based therapy too. So we, we want to work, uh, we are working to that end. And we think that a number of clinical trials may have been, you know, uh, inspired by some of our observations to in animal models, but we're hoping to work with the cancer center here at Moffitt to do more clinical trials. That would be awesome. Cause if, if you guys can show efficacy with cancer, then maybe it's might be a great diet for preventative, right? So that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, nobody studies prevention. So uh, (laughs) we'd also like to do trials where 
we have animal models that we know will get cancer at a certain time point to see if we can delay that because that's they're important studies and you know government agencies just don't fund prevention studies but they should and i think yeah. we uh hope to do those okay where can people find you and your work um and like look into more of a lot of the studies you've published uh yeah uh ketonutrition.org is a website I set up like over like 10 years ago. And uh, I compile a lot of information on there. Uh, We have a newsletter that we send out every two weeks, which is products we are testing, publications. We usually highlight a particular topic. And then our blog, the Keto Nutrition blog, hits on many different topics that we've discussed today. And we get a blog out, you know, every, every couple of weeks. So, uh, and we try to make it like a, a pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's scientific, but in layman's terms and it's mm-hmm. referenced, you know, with hyperlinks and things like that. Um, so ketonutrition.org and then I'm on Instagram, uh, Twitter and Facebook too. So people can okay. find me there. Well, thank you again so much. Um, I will put all your information in the show notes and, um, and I hope more people will look after your research. It was such a powerful tool for me, all the stuff you put out, um, help me on my ketogenic journey and then fall in love with nutrition and science. And it's been so fascinating. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed the second part of this two part series. If you didn't watch the first one, please make sure to check it out. You can see the link in show notes below, but I hope that this interview really shows you that there are nuances in a diet and some of the things that you may want to try if things just aren't working on a ketogenic meat-based diet, um, you may have to go low carb and not 100% zero carbs. Find what works for you and works for you in the long term. I hope that this interview has brought more light into your healing journey. All right, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.